song. It's one of my favorites right now. But one of the lines that uh, gets me every time is where we say, uh, sing, to redeem the whole creation. Um, the gospel is good news for you as an individual. You can have your sins forgiven through repentance and faith and through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, but the gospel is not just good news for you as an individual. It is good news because the king is on the throne and he has set in motion a plan to redeem all of creation, to set everything right, to correct all of the injustices and to eliminate unrighteousness. And so I love that massive scope of salvation that we sing about in that song, to redeem the whole creation. And that's exactly what you find when you get to the end of the book in Revelation, where God comes down to dwell among men. And that is our hope, and that is what we rejoice in and we sing about this morning. So thank you for your good singing. Uh, it, was, it was excellent to hear voices lifted up in unison, in community together, just rejoicing in the Lord and praising him for all that he's done. You can open up to Exodus 32. That's where we'll be this morning, Exodus 32. The world is filled with evidence that people are capable of some pretty amazing things. You can find videos on YouTube of pe called People Are Amazing, and it's kind of shocking what human beings are capable of. In just one arena, the Summer Olympics took place a couple of months ago, and I am always blown away. I think it's one of the things that attracts me to the Summer Olympics. I'm a sports guy, so I love competition, but I'm always blown away by what people are capable of doing. I mean, the work and the commitment that goes into preparing for an event like the Olympics, and not just the work and the commitment, but the sheer physical talent and ability that some of those athletes show, that all of them show, really, is just is mind-blowing. And sports are just one area where humans demonstrate how we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are made in such a way that we excel in all of these different areas, from medicine to music to technological advancements. I mean, humans created this little phone thing that we all have where we can FaceTime someone from a thousand miles away and see them and interact with them. That is unbelievable. From technological advancements to art and to literature, Human beings are awesome. I mean, we are incredible creations. And yet, there's another side to us as human beings. I mean, you can think about how awesome people are, and then you can get on I-75 for five minutes. <laughs> and you can see how terrible people are. How unkind they can be to one another. At a moment's notice, we are self-centered. We are arrogant. We're violent, we're power hungry, and we are often out to exploit those who are weak and who are in need. And so you've got both sides of this. And it's fascinating to watch people, particularly out in the world, try to make sense of the two sides of who we are as people. How can a creature a human being who is capable of writing a beautiful symphony that exalts us to the Lord, how can a human being who is capable of that, the same creature, be such a jerk to someone else? 
I mean, how do we have both sides of that? There's clearly something causing the dark side of our humanity, and you can ask people about it, and nearly everyone has some opinion of what it might be. Well, in this passage in Exodus 32, we are seeing the dark side of humanity put on full display. We're seeing just how terrible humans can be. And this passage, the reason we're spending so much time here, this is part two, the reason we're spending so much time here is because this passage helps you and I to identify the real reason why such amazing creatures can turn out to be so horrible at times. And obviously, as a follower of Christ, if you are a Christian this morning, you know what the root cause is. It's that word, sin. That's the problem. But here in this passage, we get a little bit more nuance into specifically what causes us to go so wrong. And we go so wrong because the human heart wants what it wants. We desire what we want for our fulfillment, and we are willing to do whatever it takes. We will craft idols. We will pursue idols that the culture has given us. We will do whatever it takes. We will replace our creator with those idols, and we'll try to do that to get security and satisfaction and to get what we want in the way and the timing that we want it. And it's important for you and I that we understand the depths of the problem of human sin. That's what I want you to see, just how bad it is, because that is the context for understanding Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. So flip over there. I know I told you 32, but flip a page over. 34, 6 and 7. Let me remind you of what we find there. And this is the center of this whole passage. Everything builds toward this. This is the the golden calf incident is the context in which this revelation of God comes to Moses and to Israel and to us. Verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but, but, this is the other side, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And there's a big question that comes when you read this revelation that God gives us of himself. How can God be both merciful and just? How can he forgive but not clear the guilty? How is he both of those at the same time? How can he do this? How is he gracious and righteous? And the whole golden calf incident is the context that leads us and informs our understanding of this passage. And so we're going to build more into this understanding of sin this week. And then in the coming weeks, we will jump into 33 and 34 and try to make sense of this tension that we see in this passage and that often we feel as we read, in particular, the Old Testament regarding God's character. And so we began studying this last week, Israel's sin and idolatry. In 32.1 to 33.6, you can see it on the screen there. We're going to get into the second part of this and finish this up this morning. But what we started looking at was this. Five ways the problem of sin disrupts and destroys. 
five ways the problem of sin disrupts and destroys. We looked at the first two of these last week. I'll remind you of these, and then we'll get into the last three. The first way that sin disrupts and destroys is that we seek security and satisfaction on our terms and not God's. This is where all of this begins in chapter 32 and verse 1. I want to remind you of this because it's important to understand what's going on. 32.1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. That's important. They're looking to the future. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Now, of course, you know Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving God's revelation, his words regarding the building of the tabernacle and the installation of the high priest and the other priest. And what happens is Israel knows he's been gone for 40 days and they start to panic. And they start to look toward the future, and they know they need to leave Mount Sinai at some point. They have to travel through the wilderness, and they want to make it to the promised land. Well, Moses has led them out of Egypt and faithfully to Mount Sinai, and he's not there anymore. And so they start to think, well, he can't have survived 40 days on the top of this mountain. It's fire and smoke and everything else is going on. And so we've got to figure out how we're going to get there. We've got to find security. We've got to find a way to be settled and at rest and satisfied. And so we've got to figure this out on our own. And so they revert back to the worship of pagan gods, just like they did in Egypt. And so they craft a god who they can control and who they say will lead them through the wilderness. And so what they're doing is they're not trusting in God here, but they're trusting in self. And they exchange the glory and the majesty of the God who has redeemed them for a dead idol. And they trust this idol for safety and guidance. And they throw a huge party proclaiming the wonder of this idol that it is what led them out of Egypt. And it's pure insanity. And it comes, their insanity comes from their hearts, from their corrupted hearts. And that's the second problem here. Second way is the problem of sin. The second of the ways that sin disrupts and destroys is that we live from our corrupted hearts. And this is in verses 7 through 10. And so while this is happening, God is on the top of the mountain with Moses, and he tells Moses what's going on. Of course, God knows all the details of what's happening below. He can see it. And in verse 7, the scene shifts to the top of the mountain. And God explains to Moses his assessment of Israel and what is wrong with them. And there's three different terms or phrases that he uses to describe their sinfulness. Look at verse 7 for one of these. The Lord said to Moses, go down for your, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have acted corruptly or they have corrupted themselves. They're corrupt, and they're acting in ways that are bringing further defilement to them. Secondly, in verse 8, he says, They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And so God describes them as rebellious and as disobedient. 
And then third in verse 9, and the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. In other words, they're pretty committed to their self-centeredness and their sin. They're stubborn. They're going to follow through on what they want in the way that they want to. They're living from corrupted, bent, and broken hearts and desires. And so all of that leads to God's jealous anger. Look at verse 10. Now, therefore, let me alone, he says to Moses, that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. God is hot. He's upset because he's made a covenant with them and they have immediately turned and violated the terms of that covenant and sought security and satisfaction in another God. Now, as we come to our third way here in verses 11 through 14, Moses is now going to respond to God and he's going to intercede for Israel. And as he does that, it highlights another way that Israel has sinned against God and that sin has disrupted and destroyed. And here's how I'll I'll put this. We ignore God's glory. This is the problem of sin that gets highlighted in Moses' response to God. Look at verse 11 as Moses responds here to God. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Now, make sure we're clear here. Moses is not asking this question because he doesn't know why God is upset. He knows why God is upset. God has made that quite clear. God has just told him. This is more of a rhetorical question, and what Moses is doing here is he's trying to highlight God's relationship to Israel. You'll notice he says they are your people, and he says they're your people who you have redeemed. You brought them out of Egypt, and he's connecting this to God's purpose for destroying Pharaoh and destroying the Egyptians through the plagues and for redeeming Israel. Notice what he says at the end of verse 11. Whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. This takes us back to God's explanation to Pharaoh of why he raised Pharaoh up and why he would deliver Israel using the plagues. Remind you of this. Sorry, it's in chapter, I didn't put it on the screen, but we'll go back to it. Exodus chapter 9 and verse 16. You don't have to turn there, I'll read it. Here's what God says to Pharaoh. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So Moses is reminding God here that God's purpose in redeeming Israel and crushing Egypt was to put his own power and glory on display. He wanted to highlight his character to all of the nations of the earth. He wanted them to know he was the one true God. Look at how Moses explains this in chapter 32 and verse 12. Look back there. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? 
Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. And so Moses says, look, you did this in order so that the Egyptians would know that you are powerful and that you are good. And Moses here is concerned with God's glory. He wants God's character to be put on display as God intended. And Israel is clearly not concerned with God's glory. They're concerned with self and their own security and their own comfort as they make their way to the promised land. And Moses' argument here is, look, if you destroy them in the wilderness, then the Egyptians are going to perceive you as powerful, that's true, but they're not going to perceive you as good and gracious. I mean, look what he says in verse 12. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent? So now Egypt's going to think of God as having evil intent and being powerful and evil at the same time. And so what Moses does is requests that God would turn his anger away from Israel. And he does this by reminding God of his promises that he made to the patriarchs, the Abrahamic covenant. Look at verse 13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, or Jacob, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I've promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And so if you remember, the covenant, the promise God made to Abraham was that he would make a great nation of him, that he would bring them into the promised land, and then so that he promised that they would be, he would bless them so that then they could be a blessing to all the other nations. And so Moses here is reminding God of this promise, and he's saying, look, a part of this was that your glory would be proclaimed to all the other nations. They would see how you bless Israel, and they would know that you are powerful and just and good. And Israel had clearly forgotten this purpose. I mean, they had forgotten why God redeemed them in the first place. They had forgotten why God made them into a special nation. Remember what God told them in Exodus 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And Israel had forgotten that they were to be God's special people, And that their mission was they were delivered in order to proclaim his glory and to represent him before all the other nations. They were redeemed in order to put his character on display. And they had neglected the fact that their highest good was found in representing God and putting his glory on display they started to believe that their highest good, the pathway to happiness and joy in life, was to get what they wanted when they wanted. Instead of living as God had designed them to live, which was to put his character and his glory on display. Now let's bring that principle over to us. Think about that reality for you and I. How were you created? 
You and I were created as image bearers of God. We are copies in some ways. And so what that means is that you and I exist. Our purpose for existence is to represent God and to reflect his character. And we find our purpose and our fulfillment and our joy in living as we were designed. You exist to make the original look good. That's why you and I live. That's the purpose. All the details of your life aim toward that one great goal. The first question of the old Westminster Catechism puts it like this. What is the chief end of man? Why do you exist? What's it all for? And here's the answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God. To glorify God is to put his character on display publicly. It's to make him look big and wonderful and good and just and righteous. And so man's chief end, the answer is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I read a story a few years ago, and I was reminded of it as I was preparing this week. And this is a weird story about this 17-year-old kid in Britain who went blind at 17. And the reason that he went blind is because for 10 years, he had only eaten, this is a true story, only eaten Pringles, white bread, and french fries. That's it. For 10 years, that's all he had eaten. Very, very picky kid. Your body is designed to work in a certain way. It's designed to have certain nutrients come into it. And when you ignore that design, when you go against how it was designed, it leads to all sorts of problems. Now, admittedly, that's an extreme case, but so is eating Pringles and white bread and French fries for 10 years. And the point still stands. And it stands for us as well. You are designed to function spiritually, emotionally, relationally, and in every other way, you and I are built and created and designed to live to glorify God, to put his character on display. We are designed to find our chief and ultimate enjoyment in him, to find our happiness and our delight and our satisfaction in a relationship with him and enjoying him. That's how you were made. And when you seek to find that enjoyment and that satisfaction in anything else, and when your life says money's the most important thing, relationships are the most important thing, my job is the most important thing, when your life says anything else is the most important thing, you are eating Pringles and white bread and French fries over and over and over again. You're not living as you were designed to live. To replace God with created things is to do what this very sad British teenager did for a long time. Now, even after doing this, even after Israel has lived against God's design for them, and even after God's 
anger is made clear and his jealous desire to wipe them off the face of the earth is made clear amazingly enough. And this, this gets into Exodus 34 a little bit. We're starting to see the tension here. Amazingly enough, after they had traded God's glory for an idol, God graciously decides not to destroy them. In response to Moses, look at verse 14. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. And so he decides that he's not going to destroy them in response to their sin. Now, that doesn't mean everything is back to being good. It doesn't mean that there are no consequences for their sin and there's no judgment. Things are not back to good. They're not back to the way they were meant to be at all. Because sin has results here. And that's the next way that the problem of sin disrupts and destroys. We ignore God's glory, and that leads to experiencing judgment and consequences. I say judgment and consequences because in some ways, these are different. I think of judgment as more directly from the hand of God coming down, and I think of consequences as more the natural outworking of sin. When you live against God's design for you, there are what seem to be natural results from that. Romans 1 paints it like God gives us up to our desires, and those desires take us down a course of life that is inherently wicked and is inherently bad for us. And so you see here, I think, both judgment and consequences when it comes to sin. Now, at this point in the story, the scene changes again after verse 14. Moses begins to head down the mountain. Look at verse 15. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Now, I hope you can see in those verses that Moses, writing this later, has gone to, to great pains to make sure we understand that these tablets were written by God. Why is that so important? Because these tablets are the covenant. This is the concrete way that the covenant is shown and is written down. This is the, the tablets are the testimony here. It's the covenant that was made between God and, Mo, and between God and Israel, included Moses. Now, you need to keep that in mind because of what you're going to see in just a few moments here. Moses descends the mountain. He meets up with Joshua, who's waiting for him. Look at verse 17. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. Quite a ruckus happening, clearly. Moses clarifies in verse 18, because he knows what God has said is going on, that it's not war. Verse 18, but he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. It's not the sound of war, it's actually a party, and it must have been some out-of-control party that was happening. Now verse 19, and as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And look what he does. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. 
Now, this is not some out-of-control, rage, anger management issue that Moses has here, okay? There's a reason that he does this. And I think it's very calculated and very intentional. He waits till he gets to the foot of the mountain, which is where the people were gathered and where this party was going on. And he intentionally smashes these tablets because they are the covenant. And what he's saying is symbolic. He's saying, you have broken the covenant that God made with you. It's done. It's over. No more relationship with God because of the sin that you have committed. And with the broken covenant comes consequences. Look at verse 20. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Now, what Moses does here is purposeful. He wants to show, he wants to desecrate this idol to show how worthless it is. Now, whenever I read this, I get this funny image of Moses making Israel line up in a line, like a group of elementary school students, and bringing them up and making them drink of the water. And that's not what's going on here. It's not forcing a cup of water into their mouth so that they drink this and it tastes bad. What he's doing is throwing this into the only water supply that they had. So they draw their water out of this, so now they are forced to drink it. One author that I read and I don't think this is too far-fetched, said that the goal of this was for the idol to end up consumed by the people and eventually to exit the people to show exactly what the people should think of any false gods. I do think that's what Moses is getting at here. He wants to desecrate this idol and show how horrendous this is that they have ascribed God's deliverance of them to this golden calf. And now after this, Moses goes after Aaron. Look at verse 21. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? Now, as Aaron responds, I want you to notice a couple of things here in verses 22 to 24. I'm going to read them and then highlight a couple of things. And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Notice what Aaron does here. He shifts the blame. This is very reminiscent of what Adam and Eve do in the Garden of Eden, isn't it? It's not me. They're the ones who are the problem And he even hints at that Moses is the problem here by repeating what the Israelites said, that Moses was gone. Well, Moses, you were up on the mountain. This wouldn't have happened if you would have just come down quicker. And then finally, Aaron's suggestion that he threw the gold in the fire and this calf sort of magically rose out of it is just ridiculous. Sin really does make you stupid, doesn't it? Our reasoning has been impacted by the fall. And the scary thing about this is most of the time we don't recognize it and we think I'm doing the right thing when we're really bent and we can't even see the situation correctly. Now I can imagine during this conversation 
that Moses and Aaron are having. I don't know where they are, but the party is going on all around them, and it has not stopped at this point. And Moses begins to take notice. Look at verse 25. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, which just means that they are out of control, there is no order to what is happening. It's a mob. And when he saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose, he'd allowed it to get to this point, to the derision of their enemies. Now, what does that mean? It could mean that their enemies would see them in this state of disorder and think this is easy prey. It could mean that their enemies would see them and think, what sort of a God do they worship? Who are these people? And they would mock them and make fun of them. We don't know. Either way, it's not good what is happening. And it shows just how far from glorifying God they had come. And so Moses has to deal with their sin. And he has to deal with their sin or else it will overwhelm the entire nation. And that's why he does what he does in verses 26 to 29. Look there. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Now, this is not a random attack where the Levites go through the camp and just start swinging their swords and killing anyone who comes across their path. What is most likely happening here is they are going around asking people whose side they were on, who they were committed to. Are you repentant for what has happened? Are you going to turn back to the Lord and acknowledge your sin? Or are you going to continue in the revelry and continue to follow and to worship this idol? And it seems like some of the key players in provoking all of the people to worship this idol were killed in the midst of this. The purpose here about those, those, with those 3,000 or so people is to eliminate the leaders who had provoked Israel to sin so that this doesn't happen again. And the goal here for us is to highlight God's justice in taking care and ridding the people of evil. God is not going to simply sweep this under the rug. The people have broken the covenant. He's not going to shrug his shoulders and think, oh, it's fine, we'll just move along here. And that's the part of Exodus 34, 6 and 7 that this highlights. He will not clear the guilty. He is a God of righteousness and justice, and he will punish sin because he's a holy God. And so you can start to see the tension that is working itself out here. God relents from destroying them, but he doesn't let them off the hook. And we see that justice further highlighted in verses 30 to 35. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Moses recognizes that atonement has to be made. You can't just pretend like this didn't happen. A sacrifice has to be made. There has to be atonement, the covering of the sin, 
so that reconciliation can happen, so that forgiveness can take place, so that two parties who are on opposite ends can come together. Now, this is amazing what happens next. Moses attempts to be that agent of atonement and of reconciliation. Look at verse 31. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. Verse 32. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. So Moses says, look, if you can forgive their sins, let's do it. But if you can't, then I will be the atoning sacrifice for their sins. But notice how God responds in verse 33. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. What is God saying here? Anyone who sins is going to be blotted out of my book, and I'm not budging on that. And this means that forgiveness and atonement are necessary for them to be in the book of life, to receive life. Notice here, too, that God refuses to accept Moses' offer as the atoning sacrifice. Why? It doesn't explicitly say, but I think the implication is that Moses is a sinner, too. He's not a worthy sacrifice for the people. Moses needs atonement too. His sins have to be taken care of and he has to be forgiven. He cannot stand in the gap for Israel. So here, I think we have a clear indication that full and final forgiveness awaits one who is greater than Moses. And so... God tells Moses to move along and take Israel to the promised land. And he's not going to destroy them, but the covenant has not been mended yet either. Look at 34 and 35. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Notice the language. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Keep that language in mind. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And then... In verse 35, clearly things have not been fully mended yet. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. Some sort of disease or sickness runs rampant through the camp because of their sin. This brings us to our last way. The problem of sin disrupts. And this is where all of this is leading. And I've used this language intentionally to go back to Eden and to go forward to Israel in the the future. We are exiled from God's presence. This is the ultimate consequence and the ultimate problem with sin. Look what God says to Israel in 1 to 3. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God's saying, I'm going to be faithful to this promise, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you. I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you. He's going to send an angel before them, a messenger before them, but he's not going to go up in their midst with them. Why? Lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. 
He's not going to go up among them because they're sinful, they're stubborn, and they're rebellious. And the reason for him to not go among them is both judgment and mercy, isn't it? He would consume them, and at the same time, it's judgment. They can't be in his presence. And so he's just and he's merciful at the same time. And the people understand what a big deal this is. Verse 4, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments, for the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now he wants them to show their repentance, their, their mourning over sin. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Oreb onward. And so we've learned quite a bit in the golden calf incident. Let me list some of these things to you, and then we'll be done. We've learned that God is gracious and that he responds to his chosen mediator as Moses intercedes for the people. We've learned that sin brings judgment and it brings consequences. We've learned that sin cannot be treated casually, and the consequences of sin go often go far beyond what we think they will and what we want them to. We've seen that this God is a God of wrath and of justice. He is a jealous God. We've seen that he will not simply wipe away sin. We've seen that forgiveness requires atonement. It cannot be any old sacrifice to bring reconciliation. We've seen that even the someone, someone the stature of Moses, a friend of God who has communion with him, cannot stand in the gap for Israel. And finally, we've seen that sin puts us as human beings outside of the presence of God. We are exiled from his presence. And we've seen that God is a God of judgment and mercy because his absolute holiness would consume any human being with sin. And so we've learned a lot from this passage, but here's, how, here's the thing. How do they all fit together? How is this tension resolved? How is God both just and merciful? How does he forgive and how is he righteous? And that's the question we're going to explore more as we move further into this passage next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We learn so much about you here and what you are like. I pray that these truths of your character would sink down deep into our hearts and they would shape how we view ourselves and view the world and view you. And that would result in lives of worship and praise to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.